Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast, and I'm Sean, your host. I want to join. I want to thank you for joining me as we're going to dive in back into one of our ongoing series called New Testament Context for Pastors, and we're picking up Matthew 21. And uh, so it's been a while because we we were doing the Investigate Babylon series, and and the amount of production that took as far as research and putting together the right things, it just uh, it was a super amount of work, and I didn't have time to do a lot of other things. So um, I'm excited to get back into this series, and uh, I just appreciate you guys for joining me. Um, as for the Investigating Babylon series, we're actually going to be replaying that, and we've started for the last couple of weeks. Uh, week by week, we're going to be replaying all 21 parts on my main channel, Kingdom of Context. So if you're not already subscribed to Kingdom of Context, now is the time to do it. Same thing with this channel. If you're not subscribed, hit that button. Tap the bell as well. Get that uh, get the ringer on so that you're notified. A lot of people complain to me that YouTube is not notifying them of my videos. I, I can't do anything about that, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, there's various ways they shadow ban channels that they don't like. So uh, we've suspected for a long time that ours is being shadow banned uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly because of the the types of content we try to address on this channel. So this is a podcast where we search for knowledge, wisdom, understanding of the Father's Word and this world, so we can better better relate the Father's Word to this world. And that's my heart. That's my prayer since I was like 18 years old. Um, so that was what a, and there's different ways that you present truth. There's different ways that you figure out about how this world's working against the truth or in spite of the truth versus how the father works through his truth. And the Investigate Babylon series is one of those uh, opportunities to present that as far as this is how the bad guys are. This is what they're doing. This is what they've been up to. This is how they started. This is all the different ways they move and their extended family of cohorts. And uh, this is how they're going to come to an end when our blessed Messiah returns on the day of the Lord. So that's what that series encompassed. And um, there's 21 parts to it. And you can actually own it yourself if you like. There's information on how to do that in the video description below. And here's a quick teaser for the entire series. series was a ton of fun. It really was. Um, we're actually going to be doing a follow-up series to that later this year if everything goes according to my plans. I can't speak for the Father's plans, but according to my plans, if everything goes uh, as I would like it to, I'm going to be getting into another series called 42, the, coming of the, the second coming of the Messiah. And um, that's uh, going to be dealing specifically with the prophecies leading up from the 42 months and into the return of Yeshua. So uh, that's going to be like a companion series. But as it is, Investigating Babylon is completed and it's out. And um, I would highly, highly, highly recommend um, that you start with episode one. Right? Don't don't start with episode twenty. I can't stop people, but I can see I can see the view count right on the videos. And and episode twenty is the most viewed video. I, I you know I can't I can't force people to start <laughs> start before that so they understand how I got to that conclusion. Um, it's kind of like, I, I guess it shows you how many people just buy a book and go and read the last chapter of the book. I don't know. I, maybe either way. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of people, um, that have emailed me and said that they have not received their investigating Babylon thumb drive that we're sending out as gifts, uh, for those donations, even though I've already mailed them like 10 to 14 days ago. So that's unfortunate. Um, we're going to be back, uh, from our, our travel, we're going to be back. Uh, to be able to check our PO box here in the next few days. So I'll be able to see if any of those have been returned because that was a return address that we put. And, uh, and then I'll be able to see, you know, any, anyone else that's been 
trying to send in their gift to the PO box. We'll be able to check at that time as well. But um, yeah, there's been about four or five people out of all the people that have requested uh, that gift that that they just haven't got it yet. So either we'll have to send another one out to them or maybe they've been returned to that PO box. They'll be able to check later this week. So thank you guys for your patience with that. And thank you for your, you know, your loving donations as well. If you want to share that series with friends and family, that's a, that's a blessing to us. It really helps uh, keep us going and, and keep us doing what we're doing. And uh, hopefully it's going to help us get the truth out with people that, that like the series, catch some attention. But guys, tonight we're looking at, we're looking at our, um, get it this here. There we go. New Testament context for pastors. All right. We're going to be picking back up with Matthew chapter 21. So in chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, we have a lot of, uh, a lot of fun context to look at when it comes to why the Messiah was doing certain things and why he was saying certain things to those who were questioning him and the Pharisees and scribes who were trying to set him up and kill him. So he responded in certain ways. He did certain things. And we're going to break it down because there's context to why he was doing and saying certain things. So here, Matthew 21, 1 through 5, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone questions you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughters of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so a lot of people, um, this is the... This is the, the prophecy that is being quoted here from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is several hundred years before Yeshua was born through the woman Mary, and he is um, being spoken about and prophesied in one of Zechariah's prophecies. And it is verse 9 that repeats the idea of him coming in victorious, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the full of a donkey. So it's very interesting. I know he comes back on a horse. I've always wondered um, on his second coming, I've always wondered if he's going to also enter into the gates of Zion through a donkey. Um, I know that he coming back, he comes back for war on a horse, but that doesn't mean he has to use the horse everywhere he goes. Uh, he might come in in a very gentle way, uh, riding on a donkey to present himself to all the survivors of the day of the Lord, to the gates of the new Jerusalem. It's just a thought, but either way, in this particular moment, this particular passage is being fulfilled with Yeshua orchestrating the fulfillment of it. And that's, what's interesting to me is that he's actually he knows that this is a is a prophecy about him and he's actually there there were preparations made to make this a reality and those preparations were not thwarted um they were allowed to be done and carried out and it's to me that's pretty amazing so that means he understood the scriptures well enough to say okay when the time comes i now here here's the part that i have a question about that i don't know the answer to so if you have an answer in the live chat you guys are welcome to put it in there how did he know to do this fulfillment at this particular moment about a week before he's killed? I have some speculation, but I don't see anything that explicitly tells us. So if you guys have any speculations, you're welcome to put them in the live chat. I'd love to take a look at them. But ultimately, I, I don't know. I don't know if... Um, I, okay, so he, he comes in, you know, this is what they call the Passion Week. This is, you know, generically or generally by a lot of scholars, they call this Passion Week because he comes to Jerusalem and it's about a week before Passover. And he, uh, 
he is basically, you know, um, just goes to the temple, teaches every day, heals people. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? So what's fascinating to me is why choose this particular moment? He's been to Jerusalem before at different points in his life. He has been to uh, the feasts at different points in his life. Um, this is this was just the last feast he was going to attend because he was about to be killed. So why this particular one? That's very interesting. Was it simply because he had already caused such a stir, healing and, and teaching so well, and casting demons out of people everywhere he went, that now there was a big crowd to notice the fulfillment of this? Possibly, possibly. Was it because he'd already stirred up the viper's nest, you know, the brood of demons, uh, the, the Pharisees who were, who were twisting the word of God and, and trying to kill him and trying to find a way to kill him? Is it possible he wanted to do that as another sign to them at this moment when they were seeking to kill him to give them a, a last chance to repent? Possibly, possibly. My theory is it has to do with the second coming. That's why I call it a theory. That's why I said I haven't seen a verse that explicitly tells us why this is happening. But my theory is he's doing this because this is the synchronous, if you will, with his return on the day of the Lord. So I've told, I've said for a long time that it's going to be around Passover, or at least that's what I see the scriptures say, that it's going to be around Passover. And that's what Matthew 22, uh, it works about that next week. And that is the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, is the Passover. And this is why the resurrection that happens on the day of the Lord at his return is considered his saints are passing over the wrath that is coming down for the wicked. So I think it's very possible that it happens approximately a week before the actual Passover, which would be the beginning. The Passover, of course, is, is held until the 14th, slaughtered in the evening, and then eight. You start to eat it at, at once it's nightfall at the beginning of the 15th, and that starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So to me, this is what I've said in the past as I've theorized. I think this is why you need seven days for both the New Jerusalem to descend to the earth as well as you need um, time for the priestly resurrected, the resurrected saints who get ordained into their priesthood to have that seven days of ordination according to the Torah. So that would make sense. That would give them the time to be ordinated into their priesthood. And then the city itself gives it time to descend to the earth without crashing down like a meteor. Otherwise, it just slowly descends and doesn't cause too much troubles. And also, it gives the angels a good week to destroy all the armies that are trying to fight him, remove them from the land, clear and get the land cleansed, burned with fire, and cleansed and be ready, purified, so that the city can sit down on it. Um, that's just my speculation. So I've always wondered... I, there's a couple things about Zechariah 9 I'm going to talk about, but I've always wondered why then, right? He He's literally going out like he's like, there's a there's someone that has a donkey. He's telling the Lord needs it. He's making this happen. He's making this particular feast. There's been donkeys in Jerusalem every other time he's gone to Jerusalem. And he's gone to Jerusalem for, for Passover already. I believe that's in John chapter 2, I believe. So he's already in, been to Jerusalem in the last time period already after people were following him and excited about him. But this particular one, the people really, really respond. They start shouting something, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy. We're going to cover that in a minute. And he goes and follows what was already prepared, which was this, this foal, this cult of the donkey, 
um, specifically. And there's other translations in, in the parallel gospel that talks about the mother came with the fold. So there was that that would be natural to to uh, make the cult at ease and feel comfortable is that the mother would lock, walk alongside of it. So therefore it was two donkeys, but he's just sitting on the cult specifically. Um, and I think that's fascinating to me. And, you know, there's symbolism there with Egypt, with ancient Egypt, as far as Osiris was considered, um, or excuse me, Ra was considered uh, like a donkey, as far as um, they would bury donkeys with pharaohs. And there was a legend in ancient Egypt about the 77 donkeys that stood on the on the horizon and prevented Ra, the sun god, from rising. Because when they stood on the horizon, it blocked the sun, and it was that much longer before it, it rose to their apparent eyes. So there was this, this cultural um, little saying uh, that the donkeys would try to war against Ra and keep the sun from rising. So I think that's interesting that he comes in. The sun, the true son of God, comes in sitting on this donkey showing mastery over something that uh, was attributed to Ra. So it's very interesting. There's a lot of different ways you could look at this. I think it's a fascinating little moment. Um, culturally, historically, fulfilling prophecy. But then you're, ask, you're asking, I ask, why at this specific moment? And I think that has to do with the context of the future, second coming, and all the events that occur according to the law, the priesthood, the resurrection, uh, the Passover, the court, the ordinance of the feasts, you know, the, the vengeance of the Lord that is a part of his Torah on the day of the Lord. So that's that's where I get my idea for that. So just food for thought, guys, you know, uh, chew it up, spit out the bones, that kind of thing. But that's, uh, to me, that's very interesting thought. Interesting thought. So let's also look at Matthew 21, 6 through 10. It says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them. A massive crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who's this? All right, so I think that's fascinating. So not only are they, all right, so he's coming in the colts and all the people see him and they start shouting Hosanna to the son of David. We're going to break that down as far as why are they shouting this phrase? What does it mean? But I think it's fascinating because at the resurrection, guys, 2nd Ezra chapter 2, I think it's verses like 39 through 45, the resurrected saints who are standing before the Son of God are handed palm branches and they're praising the Son. It's a it's just what happens apparently when you get your robes of white and you get your crown of life and you're standing there in your eternal glorified body with your new heart, you also get a palm branch. And I think that's fascinating. I think that's fascinating. And then so here they are waving branches at him. What is were they palm branches? Very possibly. Very possibly. Um, so let's look at Hosanna to the son of David. To call him the son of David was a reference to his kingship. But what does it mean to say Hosanna? This is where I think it gets interesting. So let's look at the word actually in Hosanna, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, means save, we pray, or save us, we pray. Or if you look down in like our helps word studies, it says, oh, save now, or please save, right? Or save, I pray thee, right? Like you're shouting out to someone, save me, basically. We're praying and crying out to you, save me. And it can be a cry for help or a cry of happiness. How interesting 
that they would say this to the Messiah, because they would know the reason why the Messiah was being sent, to become the servant of the Lord who would justify many. That's a high priest. That would be the only one who could save them. There's a reason why they're shouting to someone whose name is salvation, save us. It's pretty beautiful in my opinion. So let's look here at Matthew 21, 6 through 10, as it says, Hosanna to the son of David, right? This is what they're shouting. So they're saying, please save us. You who are supposed to save us, please save us, O king in the kingship of David. I think this is fascinating. This is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the name of the Lord? That is the priesthood. That is the authority. That's why he tells us Matthew 11, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Well, why? Who, who, what kind of position in covenant Israel would be capable of receiving all authority on earth or much less heaven? But amongst the mortal man, that's the high priest. Amongst the priesthood in heaven, that would be the high priest of heaven. He's going to have all authority in heaven. Where Yeshua is unique is that he, born as a man, glorified upon his resurrection and taken to the heavenly throne and ministering in the temple of God, he encompasses all authority, both over angelic kind and over mankind. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the name that Hebrews 1.5 says was given to him that was greater than even the name of the angels, right? which that name means authority in Greek and Hebrew. Isaiah 53.10-12, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, and when his soul is made a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the anguish of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So what this is saying right here, guys, this... So he's going to crush him. We know that's the cross, right? He's going to die uh, an unjustly death on the cross. What is this? What is this idea of his soul is made a guilt offering? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. To prolong your days, this is a reference to the eternal life he's promised to receive because he's going to, he's faithfully done the covenant without sin. And for all of all of mankind, everyone born of the womb of a woman, and Yeshua is now included in that, that lot. If they follow the covenant in faith and belief and are faithful until death, they get the promised resurrection. Yeshua got that promised resurrection first because he was without sin and did not need someone to atone for him and raise his his soul and redeem his soul from Sheol. He had the power within himself because he was without sin. So this is why he he earns the position of his priesthood, so then he can save the rest of us. Amen. He's wonderful. We praise him for it. This is the good pleasure that the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the anguish of his soul, that's after he died on the cross, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That is the eternal life promise of the covenant. So then he goes on to say, and this is the, the prophecy about Yeshua in Isaiah 53, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. That word justify is a reference to your resurrection. Same way it's used in Galatians and in Romans. Just for all of you guys out there that have wondered, has Sean read Galatians? Yes, I've read Galatians. So that's how this works. That's how he's talking about his servant that he's going to send to become your high priest after he suffers and dies, which means inherently he's going to be raised and given the light of life. He's going to be given life again. So everyone who would have known what covenant the covenant of Israel promises to people 
when hearing this prophecy from Isaiah, would understand someone that can justify many, that's only the job of a priest. A righteous servant, that's someone faithful in Torah, which means they're doing the terms and commandments of the covenant, so they're going to get the outcome, the benefit, the glorious you know, bonus of doing the covenant, which is eternal life. So everyone in ancient Israel understood that this prophecy was talking about someone who would come, be faithful, and then be ordained as a high priest to save them who were not faithful. And we're going to talk about the unfaithful people and priesthoods as we continue throughout this as well. So it says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Well, that's the job of a priest. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, that's the high priest, and he will, devoid the, he will divide the spoils with the strong. That's you and me. That's us who overcome, like he promises us in Revelation 2, 25-27. So he who overcomes, I will grant him the right to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father in his throne. I will give him the morning star. This is the amazing moment where not only is, is the Messiah prophesied to become into a priesthood, but all of those he divides the spoil with. That's us who, as Romans 8, 19 says, or excuse me, I think it's Romans 8, 11, um, that, that we make co-heirs with Christ. So the wonderful spoils that he gets, which is the, the good things that the Father prospers him with, we also get. That's why we get to rule and reign with him for a thousand years in the same uh, Melchizedek priesthood. It says, therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, that is, obedient until death. That's what that term means. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Oh, that's because they're going to slander him. They're going to lie about him, even though he's not, even though he's been faithful. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's because after he's raised, he goes into the heavenly temple and he makes intercession for us on behalf of us to the Father. This is our Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 5, 7-10. Uh, it's also in 1 Timothy 2.5. So all of it, if you understand the language of the Torah and why what these references are in regards to the priesthood, you understand that Isaiah is blatantly telling you the one who's going to become as the Messiah will be coming as a, and he will be killed unjustly, raised to life, glorified, and given a priesthood to, so then he can justify you, which means give you eternal life after he's covered your sin. So they knew the process. That's why Isaiah can have this prophecy and encourage people with it. So this is just a beautiful, beautiful pour. Um, in my opinion, it's a it's a perfectly stated description of what to what to expect when you're looking for the Messiah. And the people in the first century, they knew enough about the Torah to recognize this language. Similarly, what are they saying to him? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, O king. Blessed are you who comes in the authority of the Lord, of Yahweh. Well, that's both a king and a high priest. Psalm 110, 1-4, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Yeshua, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord extends your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. To you belongs the dew of your youth. 
That means he's glorified and resurrected. He's coming back with the angels who were born since the womb of the dawn, since the beginning of the dawn, the first day that the angels were created. Those are the people that are coming back to do battle with him. And he's going to come back with the authority of the Father to rule amongst the enemies throughout the millennial reign. He has to judge them first at the sheep and goats judgment, but then he's going to rule amongst those who do not, who are not utterly faithful to him. They have to learn to be faithful to him. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You were a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is it. This is the prophecy right here. Is someone that's going to rule with kingship authority as a high priest. It's all right here in the scriptures. This is the context that we uh, would need to understand why Yeshua is saying things, why the people are looking at him and shouting and praising him, saying certain things, and then why the Pharisees are going to say certain things here in a minute. So Matthew 21, 11 through 15, that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves, and he declared to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Um, so that's he doesn't like this. You know this idea i actually talked about this in investigating babylon a little bit we talked about i think it was episode 16 where we talked about the mark of the beast and i went in to reveal the name of the second beast whose name is nurgle mentioned in jeremiah um who also the world the ancient world called anubis to the egyptians he was called hermes or hermanubis to the greeks um he was also called hades to the greeks and a different version of him but uh, he was called nurgle to the assyrians the and the Babylonians. And this guy was famous for his temples being a place of market, uh, a place of, of commerce. This was the, this is one of the practices of Babylon was they would make their temples in addition to being a slave trade and to be in a uh, you know, a red light district. They also were a place where you could buy, sell and trade goods. This is why we see this incredible synchronicity in revelation 17 or 13, excuse me, where the second beast institutes the mark and you can't buy sell or trade unless you're worshiping his buddy the first beast because he's that is that was all centralized in the ancient temples if you didn't worship the god of that temple you can't buy sell and trade there so this is why the father has a different way of doing things and his son comes in the zeal of his father and looks in around at the father's temple and even though the father's temple is not perfect in this day and the priesthood that's within it is corrupted. He still has a zeal and he's like, get this, you know, don't, don't make my father's house look like the temples to Baal and Nurgle. Like my father's house can be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a holy place. So he gets mad, kicks them out says the blind and lame came to his, came to him at the temple and he healed them. Hallelujah. Such a short little statement. So powerful. I'd love to be able to replicate that today. I'd love to see anybody replicate that today. It's not about me. I'd love to see anybody truly be able to replicate this today. Someone that's walking in the Torah, understanding that, you know, how simple it is. I pray that the Father brings me to this, to this form of faithfulness and obedience all the time. I'd love to be able to go into a hospital and just clear the place out and get arrested because they thought I was practicing medicine. I would love to. I would love to. That's, I mean, I just, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe at some point in the future, someone will, as we get closer to the day of the Lord and more gifts of the Spirit are just poured out to counteract uh, the evil that's going to be increasing. So, yeah, such a simple statement. So beautiful, though. But that's because he has the authority flowing through him because he's faithful. He's not transgressing the covenant. Uh, but the chief priests and the scribes were indignant when they saw the wonders he performed and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, meaning, save us, O King. Save us. 
and the, and his his uh, detractors, his his slanderers, his uh, the brood of vipers trying to kill him. They're watching and they're just fuming, getting triggered. They're just hating on him because he's doing all this good stuff and the people love it. They are gnashing teeth in their hearts. And this is the paradigm that we're going to see when the kingdom comes. The people outside who somehow survived the day of the Lord, who do not like him, who hate him and his father's authority and their way of life, they're going to be gnashing of teeth as they stand judgment to be destroyed. So in the same way, these particular guys are going to, are gnashing of teeth when they're literally watching the Son of God do these amazing things and bring peace and healing to people. So this, to me, is just super evil right here. <laughs> super evil. But let's look at, uh, again, they're saying Hosea to the son of David. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's Mighty Elohim, means Mighty Ruler. It doesn't mean he's the Father. Everlasting Father. We've broken this down as well. I've done an entire Morning Cup of Context video. It's called Isaiah 9, 6. Is, the, is Jesus the Almighty or something like that? I can't remember the name of it. But I basically go over the use of the word Father in Hebrew when it pertains to a ruler, and that was very common. We see it in Genesis 45. We see it in Isaiah 22, the same book of Isaiah 9. We see it in multiple places. It was very common to call your king as a father to the people because he ruled over them like the patriarch of a father would rule over the household of his personal house. He's also called Prince of Peace. And it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. So I think this is beautiful. And I think this is, this is a key term here that I feel like people should have. I didn't make a slide for this because this is bonus content, but people should understand the book of Enoch because when it talks about the zeal of the Lord of hosts, this is not talking about Yeshua. This is a term that we see used synonymously for Yahweh. And in the book of Enoch, it calls him the Lord of spirits. Well, the hosts, which is a word for heavenly armies, are the spirits of whom Yahweh is ultimately Lord over. The Almighty is Lord over all the angelic spirits in heaven. So it's this is essentially saying to you, the zeal of the Father will accomplish this. Will accomplish what? The establishment of his son on the throne of David, ruling as a king over covenant Israel, and establishing with righteousness and just, justice to set his son up. This is why he says in the other prophecies corresponding with Isaiah 9, I will send my servant who will justify many, who will rule and reign in the, in the priestly capacity. The Lord said to my Lord, right? Yahweh said to my Savior, my Yeshua, my Lord. This is, this is that dichotomy of father and son. So this is a, just a, you know, this is why the people who would, even at a base level, have heard the prophecies of Isaiah, this is why they're shouting. They've determined in their mind from all the good things that Yeshua was doing, this is the Messiah. So they're shouting, save us, O King, Son of David, save us. Uh, Testament of Levi, chapter 8, 14 through 15. There's more prophecy than just in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and there's more prophecy about the coming king, right? Testament of Levi, chapter 8, 14 through 15. The third shall be called by a new name, because a king shall arise in Judah and shall establish a new priesthood to all the Gentiles. And his presence is beloved as a prophet of the Most High, of the seed of Abraham our father. 
Of course, you guys, hopefully you know that word Gentile just means nations. It's, this is not a, this is not a racial segregation thing that like Judaism promotes. It just, it simply just means a word of different nations who come into faith and belief. Of course, just like we do today, right? I was not born of ancient Israel, but I've come in and been grafted into covenant Israel through faith and belief. Yeshua is my Messiah, my high priest, which is this new priesthood, both a king shall arise in Judah. We know that he's from the lineage of Judah and shall establish a new priesthood. This is what Hebrews tried to tell you about, that there was a king that's that's serving from the tribe of Judah that who's never served on the altar before because normally it was given to the Levites. This is prophesied in the land of Goshen a couple hundred years before Moses by Levi. <laughs> I think this is amazing, personally. I think it's amazing myself. Um, so next year we have in Matthew 21, 16 through 20. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked. Yes, Jesus answered. Have you ever read? Have you? And so this is the chiefs, scribes, and Pharisees who are hating on Jesus, right? They're saying, do you hear what these children are saying? <laughs> They're so concerned, right? Yes, Jesus answered. Have you never read from the mouths of children and infants you've ordained praise? Which is out of the Psalms. Then he, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So in the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. May you never bear fruit again, he said. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they marveled and asked, how did the tree, the fig tree wither so quickly? Next, uh, the next passage here, Matthew 21, 21 to 23. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. When Jesus returned to the temple courts and began to teach, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? <laughs> All right, so let's stop and we're going to focus in on the, on the highlighted yellow passage here because this is him trying to explain to them. He's trying to teach them something, right? If you, if you, believe, if you have faith and do not doubt, if you believe, you will receive what you ask for in prayer, even to the point, not just like a fig tree, but you could have a mountain be thrown into the sea if for whatever reason that was appropriate to what you're doing. But here's this wonderful place in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 16, verse 24, that talks about the creation serving you who has made it. That's Yahweh, the Almighty, exerts itself to punish the unrighteous, and in kindness, it relaxes on behalf of those who trust in you. To trust in Yahweh is to do his commands. That's to be in faith and belief. And here we have the wisdom of Solomon telling us that those who are faithful to the Father and they do his behaviors, his commandments, the creation is going to work with you instead of against you. To me, this is a this is like probably, I don't know, it seems like probably on par with one of the greatest life hacks ever passed down through through scripture. Because it's like, you know, I just want to start going out there and being like, all right. This, this wants to motivate me to get better at being faithful to doing the behavior of Yeshua because it, this was not just a, a benefit or a, a, this was not just a special power that, that he had because he was the Messiah. 
Moses part of the Red Sea. Moses was trusting in the in the Father. Um, Moses threw the through the log in the water, caused it to become sweet. You know, I mean, I just go through the list. Moses prayed specifically when they were trying to kill him and Aaron and overtake the leadership with the rebellion of Korah, number sixteen. Moses specifically prayed, "Let a new thing be done that's never been done before, to show." that you, Lord, are the one in charge here. May the ground beneath him and their tents open up and swallow them alive. And lo and behold, it happens. The creation worked with to assist Moses in multiple times. Other prophets, same way, even to the point of people being brought back to life. Actual miracles. This is what Yeshua is doing everywhere. He takes the mud and he puts it to the guy's eye. The guy's healed from being blind. The creation was working with the power of the Messiah or the power of the faithful. That's those who trust in Yahweh. So hopefully that's encouraging to anyone listening. Like, to me, it's it's a motivator to continue to be more like my Messiah and be more faithful. Matthew 21, 21 through 24. I will ask you one question, Jesus replied. And if you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What was the source of John's baptism? Was it from heaven or from me or from men? They deliberated amongst themselves and said, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask, why then did you not believe him? But if we say it was from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So they answered, we do not know. And Jesus replied, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So there's this cat and mouse game here that Yeshua set them up to, to fail, basically, because they, he, they were being dishonest. They're trying to find a way to kill him. They're liars. They're not following the commands of God. They're not walking in the spirit at all. They're, they hate the fact that he is exemplifying righteousness to the point where he can actually heal people miraculously. So he has some true enemies on his hands. These are truly villains in the story at this point. And they're asking him about John the Baptist. Well, when they're asking about the source of his baptism, it wasn't about simply the fact that he was out there dunking people in water. It was, by what authority is John doing this? So Yeshua's like, what well, was it from heaven or was it from, from men? Because if it was from heaven, well, then we've got an issue here because you didn't believe him. So now you're not following Torah because this is what Deuteronomy 18 tells us. This is how we are faithful to God. This is how we are obedient in faith and belief. We follow his instructions. One of those instructions is if a prophet who's sent by God comes to do stuff, you better listen to him. That's what Jeremiah 18, 17 and 19 says. The Lord said to me, they've spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. And I will hold accountable anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So when the prophet, John the Baptist, comes along, heals people, performs um, baptisms to, to cleanse them as he, as he is calling them to repentance, which means that he wants them to do the covenant behavior again. That's a prophet. And Yeshua himself said he's the greatest of the prophets. The people, the people saw and tested John the Baptist according to the Torah and, and found him to be a prophet. The Pharisees knew this. He just acknowledged, well, the people regard him as a prophet. Why? Pharisees, why? Why would the people think that John the Baptist is a prophet? Oh, is it because he's passing the test of a prophet? He's calling people to repentance, to do what's right, not to do your traditions of men, but to do the actual commandments of the covenant? 
Yeah. So he passes the test and they do regard him as a prophet, meaning his authority is from heaven, meaning to kill him, to reject him, to push him out and make him go be in the, in the desert <laughs> is you giving the middle finger to the father. This is, this is why the father's like, look, if you're not going to listen to the words that I put that the prophet speaks in my name, then you're, you are rejecting these people that I've risen up for you to help you. It means you're rejecting the father. And in the same way, they rejected the sons, which was sent by the father. Therefore, they're rejecting the father. This is why they're not doing the law of God. Matthew 21, 28 through 32. But what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first one and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he replied. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the second son and told him the same thing. I will, sir, he said, but he did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? Well, the first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a righteous way, and you did not believe in him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So Yeshua is still talking to the Pharisees in this moment. This is, the, this, this is his rebuttal, right? What was the first thing? He, they came to him and said, but, but what authority are you doing these things? And he goes, well, what authority did John the Baptist have? Was it from heaven or from men? And they're like, well, we don't know. He's like, all right, well, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he follows it up with, he's not done playing with these guys. He follows it up with, tell me what you think about this. There's a man who had two sons, right? So then he gives up, he gives this scenario for them to talk about, right? This anecdotal story. And in the story, the son who at first said no, but then changed his mind and was obedient later, that's the one that's blessed. That's the one who did what was right. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are that first son. All of mankind is called to do what's right. But for a time in their life, they didn't. But then they repented and did what was right later in their life. The Pharisees was this own little special sect raising people up to try to train them to supposed to be doing what's right. But that whole group had been corrupted and suddenly was now teaching the commandments of men and profaning the temple, profaning the authority of the father and not doing the commandments, not being obedient to the father. Even though they were trained to be like that, they abandoned their first love. They fall into the category of the second son. This is why he would say to them, even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. You sh they stood, guys, just in the same way, like in John chapter 8, I think it's verse uh, 42 or 30, 38, where Yeshua says, if you do not believe I am the Messiah, you will be condemned and die your sins. If any Pharisee had died before Yeshua announced himself or even shown up the first time and had rejected John and didn't repent, and they continued doing their anti-scriptural behavior and rejected John because they didn't believe in him, they would have also died in their sins. Because it's the whole point of the prophet that sent that you would believe in him is that his words you're supposed to heed and listen to, meaning what is he saying? What are the words he's saying? Repent. Turn your behavior from this destructive anti-Torah behavior. Turn it back to the commandments of the covenant. And this is the same message Yeshua shows up in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 2. He's telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Get back to doing the ways of the covenant. 
So there's some verses that correspond with this context. Ezekiel chapter 18. But if the wicked man turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. Because of the righteousness he has practiced, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Wouldn't I prefer that he turn away from his turn from his ways and live? It's rhetorical, but he's just saying, yes, I would prefer that this guy stop sinning and turn repent and so I can give him eternal life. This is a description of the first son in that parable that he's that he's posing to the Pharisees to reveal their hearts. He's saying, look, this first son, he turned and repented. So therefore he will live. He will get eternal life. But that second son, the one who who shouted at the beginning, yeah, we'll do it. But then he actually doesn't do it. That's the one that's not honored. That's the one that unfortunately doesn't doesn't make it. We also have in the Testament of Levi, again, chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we have the description of the Pharisees. That's why Yeshua knows who he's talking to, in, in you know, not just because of this, but a whole bunch of reasons. This is just one of them, that Yeshua can look at these people and know who he's talking to and accurately call them a bird of vipers, deceivers, slanderers, whitewashed tombs. He can call these people this thing because they're literally fulfilling prophecy <laughs> this is one of those prophecies the testament of levi chapter 16 1 through 3 now i have learned in the book of enoch that for 70 weeks you shall go astray and profane the priesthood and pollute the sacrifices and you shall make void the law and set at nothing the words of the prophets by evil perverseness you shall persecute righteous men and hate the godly that's what they're doing with john the baptist and now with yeshua this is what Yeshua calls them out for doing in Matthew 23, saying that you've stoned and killed all the prophets. And they've also, you know, they've persecuted John the Baptist, and now they're about to kill Yeshua also. So this is this these, uh, these evil perverseness. They're persecuting righteous men, and they hate the godly. That's why they're looking at Yeshua being godly, healing people, which is a good thing. There's nothing ever wrong with that. And they're hating on him. The words of the faithful shall you abhor. That's why they're looking to entrap Yeshua with everything he says. And a man who renews the law in the power of the Most High, you shall call a deceiver. That's Yeshua. He's coming to renew the law. This is why I've talked about in, in the first installment of this series in Matthew 1-3, through 3, I talked about the prophecy about why it describes Yeshua from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1-4, through 4, about he is the light that shines upon Zebulon, because the land was in darkness. They were not doing the covenant. The commandments of God are light to the eyes. They're not doing the behavior of the light of heaven, of the light of the angels, of the light of God. They were doing transgressing ways and worshiping other gods and walking in wickedness and making up their own traditions and commands. They were not doing the covenant behavior. Yeshua shows up preaching repentance, walking in utter faithfulness, exuding the light of life, letting his light so shine before men that they may see his good works and glorify the Father in heaven. So this is why this prophecy about him in regards to the Pharisees who are hating on him says that a man who renews the law in the power of the Most High, you shall call a deceiver. Right here, Yeshua does the law. Just for all you guys out there dealing with dispensationalists. It also says, And at last you shall rush upon him to slay him, not knowing his dignity, taking his innocent blood through wickedness upon your heads. Testament of Levi, guys, was found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. Do we think Yeshua had access to this testament?
Do we think that uh, possibly between Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Testament of Levi, he kind of knew how these people were going to treat him, what they were going to do to him? I think so. I think the Father laid it out pretty clearly through his prophets. He goes on to say, Matthew 21, 33 through 37. Yeshua says, listen to another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it out to some tenants and went away on a journey. When the harvest time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his share of the fruit. But the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group. But the tenants did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him and threw, out of the vineyard, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard returns, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They replied, and will rent out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the fruit at the harvest time. So this is the parable where Yeshua is telling, talking to the Pharisees, saying, all right, so guy has a, has a, he has a pit, he dug a, put a wall around it, dug a tower. That can be, it's a wonderful metaphor for the creation model, but it also works for the temple. And specifically with Yeshua, they took him to the temple, prosecuted him, or where he was in the temple, um, uh, he was in the temple teaching and healing people, but then he's not welcome back there because they go arrest him, prosecute him, hang him on a cross. So he's literally the son of the vineyard owner. Why would Yeshua know that the son of God or anyone, why would anyone recognize and know that the son of God would be the one that's sent to be the savior who resurrects mankind? Second Ezra chapter 7, 20 through 29. For my son Jesus shall be revealed with those that be with him, and they that remain shall rejoice within 400 years. After these years shall my son Christ die, and all men that have life. I've tried to explain before. I know people are probably asking immediately. I don't, the way it's worded, trans, translated from the uh, the Aramaic from this um, with Second Ezra chapter 7, I don't think the 400 years is speaking to how long Yeshua was living and his disciples were with him, but how how long between the days of Ezra at the end of his life getting this prophecy to the point of Yeshua's birth. So that's to my understanding. Um, because apparently Ezra lived a long time. So after these years shall my son Christ die and all men that have life. Okay. Christ, yes. He's the first roots of the first resurrection. So he's going to die. And then all men that have life. Well, we know that it's appointed for all men to die, but I think personally it's referring to those who are in the faith who are all men that have life. That means they're going to get resurrected to eternal life. So the point of saying that these men die, it's Christ dies first, just as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 tells us, and then those who are his at his coming will also get that first resurrection body. And so this is why they would all be all be said to have have life in regards to Christ first. Matthew 21, 42 through 46. Jesus said to them, uh, real quick, before I skip past too far past this, guys, think about what we just read here. The Pharisees, the chief priests, that should be a Levite, but we, there's some discrepancy there. The chief priests, the scribes, who are also Levites, and the Pharisees, whomever else of, of the ilk of the Pharisees, 
Do they have access to Second Ezra's? This is one of their greatest priests in their history, Ezra. Do they have access to his scrolls? They should. He restored all their scriptures that they have that they're reading during the days of the first century. I hope they still have his books. One of his books was put in their canon. First Ezra. Why not second? What happened to second Ezra, guys? By the way, the word Ezra's is just a Greek transliteration where we get the word Ezra. So Yeshua is talking to people that should have known and had access to not just that the Son of God would come, but he would come to be a king, a high priest. Oh, and by the way, his name would be Yehoshua or Yeshua, however you want to say it to, to mean salvation in the ancient Hebrew. Transliterated here in this modern English translation here in Second Ezra to say Jesus. So there's a lot of accountability here that that Yeshua is being extremely patient with these Pharisees, even to the point where he's doing the, you know, telling them a parable, giving them an anecdotal story, asking them directly, okay, well, why are you rejecting someone that was walking in the authority of God like I am? Like he's being extremely patient with these guys. But he's also he also is on a mission, you know, saying as far as like what he has to go do next. And so he's he's not trying to say certain things that would rouse them to the point of uh, apprehending him in that moment because he's got other stuff he has to accomplish. So at the right time, he allowed them to take him. Matthew 21, 42 through 46, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? Now this, this is hilarious to me, right? Uh, because he's asking these guys who are supposed to be experts in the scriptures, but he keeps asking them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he who on whom he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew that Jesus was speaking about them. Although they wanted to arrest him, they were afraid of the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So in addition to John the Baptist, now it's they know. The people regard Jesus as a prophet too, so they are in direct violation of Deuteronomy 18. I mean, it's just, they're truly motivated by unclean spirits, in my opinion. Psalm 118, 22 to 26. This is what we had highlighted in the yellow. This is the prophecy that Yeshua says, have you never read the scriptures? And he starts quoting. This is what he's quoting from. This is that context. The stone of the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. But there's more to it. Read the rest of it. This is the day that the Lord has made. He, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, save us, we pray. That's Hosanna. This conversation, guys, is taking place after his triumphant entry on the colt of the donkey, where the people were shouting Hosanna. He gets off the donkey. He goes and heals some people. The Pharisees are there watching and the chief priests, and then they start interacting and talking. So the chief priests and the Pharisees just a few moments earlier, heard all the people and saw them waving the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. And this is, and then so he bringing it back to, you know, bringing it back to relevance there for, he's trying to give them the context of what's happening in this moment because they're clearly not reading the room. He's trying to give them the context. 
Hey, have you never read the scriptures? Because it's literally being fulfilled in front of your eyes. I am the stone that the builders rejected. And, oh, it's marvelous to Yahweh. And the people rejoiced and shouted, save us, we pray. It's right here. We beseech you, O Lord, cause us to prosper. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were shouting. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. He walks into the temple, or excuse me, into Jerusalem, and then he goes into the temple to heal people. From the house of the Lord, these people bless him. Because I'm, I'm, when he healed them, I'm sure they're blessing him, praising him, thanking him. They regarded him as a prophet. This is why the people were excited and loving on him. The chief priests and Pharisees realized this is definitely not the time to take him. That's why they had to take him in the middle of the night when no one's around. It's it's to me it's baffling, but this is this seems to be I mean this type of mindset where the Pharisees can literally be having Jesus tell them, hey, you're fulfilling this prophecy right now, and you're on the wrong side of history at this point. You might want to change. You might want to repent. John the Baptist gave you a chance to repent. You didn't like him, even though the people they to tell me was his authority from men or from heaven. Ah, uh, so you know the people think he was from heaven, but you don't. But you don't want to admit it was from heaven because you rejected him because your heart is opposite of john the baptist just like their heart was opposite of yeshua's so they're rejecting yeshua it's all about the heart this is what we read in testament of levi chapter 16 where it says you profane the holy sacrifices and pollute the altar guys it wasn't because they were doing the physical uh things wrong as far as the way they would slaughter the animal sprinkle the blood present the fire and the grain offerings the burnt offerings i'm sure they were doing all that right their hearts were corrupted this is what yahweh wants and tells us in ezekiel 44 7 through 9 that in his house in the future the one that'll be called the house of prayer that all people will have both circumcised flesh and hearts they're not just going through the motions there because they they like the position of power like the pharisees and the chief priests and scribes of this day they're there serving the Lord and their priesthood in the millennial reign in the future as a part of the resurrected saints and the Levites he chose us from among mortal mankind because their hearts love him. They're not hypocrites. So Yeshua is literally trying to get these guys, give these guys a clue. He's trying to clue them in. Like you're walking around right now and you're our conversation right now and your heart and what you're seeing these people do right now is fulfilling prophecy in like four different ways. And you're rejecting all of it. You you can repent still, but it's going to cause you to forgive and to let go of whatever pride you have. This is, you know, I mean, this is about as meta as it can get. <laughs> For Yeshua in the moments, prophecy is being fulfilled. Tell them, hey, you're watching prophecy being fulfilled and your words to me is also prophecy being fulfilled and you're the bad guy. So maybe stop being the bad guy. Oh, you, you don't want to stop being the bad guy? That's more prophecy being fulfilled. You're plotting to kill me? That's more prophecy being fulfilled. You're being the bad guy. You don't have to be. You can repent. It's just, to me, this is just, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to fathom. I mean, especially when you see someone being healed, like you, this dude that just healed these people miraculously, now he walks over to you and he's willing to engage with you. And he tells you that you're being the bad guy and he wants you to repent. Like, I would repent. <laughs> I, I pray. I pray that I would repent in that moment. I mean, Father, please, please let me repent. Like this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, 
boy. So that's uh, chapter 21. That is, uh, that is all that, we, that we're going to be covering on this particular installment. There's just so much, so much in Yeshua walking around, doing beautiful things, fulfilling the scriptures everywhere he goes, and watching the scriptures being fulfilled against him. So this is what I talk about as far as, you know, you guys ever seen, let me see if I can find a picture here of the Heisman Trophy. Okay, so the Heisman Trophy is, all right. I always thought that the Heisman Trophy, I, I don't know who Heisman was, and it doesn't matter. The point of I'm showing this is, um, hang on. I don't know if it's going to let me do that. Let me try it over here. All right, so the Heisman Trophy is a great... Um, example, if you will, of our Messiah's demeanor and disposition as he's walking around uh, ministering, which I think we could all learn from. All right, so you guys see this? So the fact that it's it's in one hand, he's on a mission, he's running. It's, it's a running back move, right? You're on a mission, you're trying to get to the goal. You're clutching what's precious in one hand, that's the that's those who are listening to his words, those whom the Father gave him, his disciples, plus everyone else trying to learn and be healed from him. Meanwhile, you're stiff-arming the enemy. And Yeshua does this most of the time with a smile. And he does this like a running back. You don't have enough power as you're running full speed towards something and you're, you're clutching precious cargo with the other hand. You normally don't have enough power to hurt the people you're stiff arming, but you do have enough power to withstand them. But that means just like if you've seen a, a great football game, you you'll withstand them, you'll push them off and they may bounce off and then run and catch up with you further down the field and try again. And that's what we see Yeshua, our wonderful master and savior. That's what we see him doing constantly with these, this brood of vipers, these Pharisees that they are, continually trying to tackle him and stop him from achieving, getting to the goal, which is his priesthood, his resurrection to his priesthood so he can save us. They're trying to stop him. They don't want him there. They hate him. They hate the fact because they they like the power that they had and they don't want him getting that position. So that's our, I would say that's our disposition that we should strive for is we're, we're hanging on to the brotherhood of the faith. We're doing good to the family of God. We're walking in love to all mankind, but also the family of God so that people can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But then with the other hand, we got to stiff arm the haters. We got to be like, all right, okay, I heard you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you. That doesn't mean you have to hang around with them, but you've got to know how in one hand, Hang on to what's right, what's good, what's precious, what's noble, what's peaceful, and then stiff arm the enemy who's trying to get in your way and troll you, right? Because he wants to steal your joy and steal your peace. So this is the, this is like the, the you know, this is the the behavior, the discipline, if you will, the the muscle you have to build, if I may, that in order to 
attain what I would consider to be a very successful walk in, in, in discipleship like Messiah. This is what Messiah did. You know, this is what Paul was good at. Um, Peter struggled. Um, he may have gotten better over time, but I mean, you know, this is a guy that um, grabbed a sword and started swinging at one point. I, I would say that's, you know, they weren't there for Peter. They were there for Yeshua. So I don't think that he was uh, in the right in that moment. Yeshua told him to put away his sword and he healed the guy that whose ear he's cut off. So, you know, there's, it's one of those things of like, how do I lovingly do good to my neighbor and also my enemy, right? But at the same time, those who are the antagonistic trolls who, who aren't trying to be my enemy because there's, because I can show them kindness and overcome that and repair that breach. They're just there to antagonize me, to kill me. They're slanderous and they're murderous in their heart and their intentions. You've got to be able to push those away as you stare at the goal, keep your eyes on the prize and protect what's precious. So I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know how well everyone uh, appreciates the football analogy, but I used to play football when I was younger. So that's what I see my Messiah doing. He's a master at it. He truly is a master at it. Guys, if you have any questions about some of the things that we talked about, please put them in all capitalization. I'll be glad to take a few questions here at the end of the broadcast. And uh, also, you know, that way myself or the moderators can see them easily if you put them in all caps. That way I know you're talking to me and asking me the question. And if we don't have any questions, that's okay. That's okay as well, guys. I don't have, um, I don't have, uh, how do I say this? I talked about yesterday, I might want to do tour portions of my other channel. I talked about how not, um, I don't have a lot of extra time right now. That's why I'm trying to streamline some things. But um, depending on the topic, I do, I might still have time to, to have conversations with people, you know, like I do the discussions, the roundtables, sometimes they turn into debates, don't mean them to, but that's, you know, um, some people don't like, you know, they don't like the, they don't like being questioned basically. Um, but if you guys know of any pastors that you would like me to talk to, who you feel like is a loving, you know, a loving pastor that can keep his cool. And there's a topic that he, you know, that uh, we address and that you you would like to see me talk to him about, you're welcome to send him uh, Kingdom and Context at Gmail. You can send him my my email and you know let him get familiar with me and see if he's interested in talking to me. And I'll be glad to to consider that and try to schedule that as, as much as possible because that's something that you know it's a conversation I can have and I don't have to do a whole bunch of uh, prep behind the scenes for that type of show because this you know that's what the last twenty years has been prepping in the scriptures so I can have those conversations in real time. But I don't have to make a lot of slides and videos is what I'm saying. Okay, so Emma Kinsey's asking, are we not guarded against those teaching false are we not to be guarded against those teaching false doctrines? Pray for them, but not break bread with them. Um, well, it depends. I would say it depends on quite a few, quite a few things. Um obviously, yes, to the first the first main point. You want to be guarded against, you know, you want to guard your heart, it's the wellspring of life. You want to you want to guard yourself, obviously, against unsound doctrine um, that is clear and, and obvious, right? You just want to abide by the clear instructions of the commandments for your heart, so you can have sound theology. And 
but as far as not trying to associate with someone just because they teach what you consider false doctrine, this is where it gets kind of sticky, right? Because I don't know if, you know, I, this may be a, a subjective issue for each person, right? What, what one person considers false doctrine, the other person, you know, they've spent 10 years studying and realizing, oh, there's this person is, this person has a specific pet, pet doctrine feeling about this and they're being extra about this particular topic, but it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be like that. Um, so I don't think that, I think that if, if the person who's teaching a doctrine that you disagree with is encouraging division for those who disagree with their type of teaching, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't like, I'm not trying to be best friends with them, but I, but if they ever truly wanted to have dinner with me, I wouldn't say no, because it would give me a chance to possibly open up loving conversation. They can see that I'm just a you know, normal guy, you know what I mean? But if they're on a vendetta to smear, slander, destroy, you know, um, cancel anyone that disagrees with their particular teaching or how they word something, then um, that is where it gets sticky, right? That's the person that would that uh, that needs to be lovingly rebuked and reprimanded and shown the proper scriptures. Um, and again, that's up to your discretion as far as do you, you know, should you go in and hang out with them? And if you do, what's your purpose there? You know, is it to be, is it to truly make a new best friend with someone that just vehemently agrees with you on doctrine? Well, that sounds like a bunch of arguments waiting to happen. And I don't think that's good for anybody. Is it someone that's potentially, you know, that could listen to you a different perspective and can keep their calm and cool, right? And they just have a whole different opinions and still can be loving with you? Then, yeah, I, I would. I would break bread with them. I'd have meals with them. I would celebrate Sukkot with them. Like we have before, but <laughs> there's a lot of people that do not agree with everything that we talk about, but they're super loving and kind with us. And so we're the same way back to them, you know? So it's, it's a interesting question, but it's, there's a lot of caveats that there's a lot of circumstantial uh, things within that question that I would have to figure out first. All right. Thanks for the compliments. My wife's in the in the live chat. Uh, Lindsay and I's fourth anniversary is coming up. Yeah, it's going to be great. Four of 50. Or it depends on how I wait. Wait, well, that means I would be what? 90 something. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go 70. I'd like to live to nearly 120. I think that'd be great. So maybe it's four of 70. Lord willing. All right, guys, not seeing a lot of questions in live chat, so I really appreciate you guys being here. Uh, hopefully that means I was thorough with what I talked about tonight and some of the passages to show you some of that context when we go through Matthew 21. And, and so I've, as you can imagine, guys, all this, this series, this you know New Testament context for pastors, it's, yeah, I pray that actual pastors see this, and this is not a, a slight against them. This is just a, I know that a lot of them don't get this type of teaching in seminary, so food for thought if you're a pastor watching this. But um for all of you that are not pastors, this is just, these videos are just full of apologetics for you. So, because you sometimes answer a lot of questions with both believers and unbelievers by understanding the context of why Yeshua did and said certain things. So we hope that it's a help to you. And, um, um, all right, so we got a couple questions coming in real quick. Bellicose Project Steps, and if Yeshua was here today, would he say what he said to the Pharisees in Mark 7? pastors today probably some of them yeah probably um i think that it wouldn't be as direct though because those pastors wouldn't be trying to kill him 
<laughs> it would be more of a discipleship issue, right? Like Paul is encouraging Timothy into certain behaviors. Um, it would be more of a, of a, Hey, I love your heart, but let's show you what sound doctrine is. There's a difference between modern pastors and the Pharisees guys, the modern pastors, they worship and praise the son of God and they accept the father who sent him. It right. Whether you agree with their tactics, their approach, their fog machine, or their youth group activities, that's irregardless. Their heart agrees with the centrality of the message of the Father and the Son, the Son being sent as the Messiah. They will acknowledge he's the high priest, but they most of them can't explain what that means. They will acknowledge that he's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. They will acknowledge that he lived, died, and was resurrected, and that he was the, the one sent and prophesied by the Father. And they will call people to repentance, even though many times they don't know the fullness of what that means, according to the scriptures. So I don't see it as in a... Uh, I don't see it as in the vein that Yeshua spoke to the Pharisees and telling that these people are literally just looking for a way to kill him. I would see it more of as a discipleship concept where he's, you know, he's the good shepherd, right? So he's got some sheep that keep banging their head on the fence because they don't, they, they need to have their eyes averted to the open field pasture, right? Where you can run freely in his commands as opposed to knocking your head on the fence constantly. So that's, yeah, it'd be the same conversation, but in a very, very different tone, in my opinion. Lorraine's asking, how do I lovingly talk to my cousin regarding speaking in tongues? Well, um, I would suggest that, um, I would suggest just asking them to break down, you know, Acts chapter two with you as far as the meanings of the words, right? What does it mean to speak in a tongue? What did, what did they, what did, because Acts chapter two directly tells you that they weren't babbling, they were speaking different languages. And that's why, Paul later says in Corinthians that pray that there's an interpreter there when someone starts speaking in tongues, literally, because they're speaking, it's supposed to be speaking a different language. So, and in that, you know, in the first century mid, mid East, you know, you had all different cultures collaborating uh, for the feasts and Passover and things like that coming to, from different, different, uh, this, this, this dispersed believers that were amongst the different nations who had speaking different languages. So um, I would just, you know, like we do with a lot of, a lot of ways to find context to help people better understand the, you know, the, the application of it for our life. Just look at the definition of the word used next too. that might help. That might be a good starting point. See where it goes from there. Endo's here. He's asking, I was told by a close brother that water baptism was only for prophets thoughts. Well, I'd say he would have to show me why that Yeshua and John the Baptist were baptizing the average people, but water baptism is, a. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's a cleansing process, both with a practical service to coming before the temple to offer your sacrifice, but also it was a show of repentance to the people as well, that you were actually going to follow the commandments of God. So I think uh, I would ask, I don't know what led to that conversation with your close brother, but I, um, and I hope I'm reading your, your question properly, but I disagree with his thoughts on that. Chico 1985 is asking, are we able to use spirit box devices to communicate with the dead? Well, I, you know, no matter what medium you use to communicate with the spirits, I would say don't do that. It's against Deuteronomy 13 and 18, um, personally, and that's setting you up for big deception. So I personally wouldn't do it, and I don't think that we should, no matter what, whether you, you use a, a person or electronic device or an animal, I wouldn't do it. All right, Matthew, would I appreciate the super chat, brother? Um, you're asking if we're allowed to shave our face because the verse in Leviticus is speaking about shaving the beards is in regard to pagan worship. Does that mean tattoos are also okay if there's no ritual connected? 
Um, no, the the tattoo, in my understanding, the tattoo was about do not put ink on the skin, do not put ink on the body. But um, the um, so, so that would be regardless of any ritual, uh, if I could say it like that. And there's no precedent. So like that's not something you're born with either. You know what I mean? It's something you have to apply on your skin after the fact. And it was a custom that was done in honor to the dead. So look. Lots of people that are believers have gotten tattoos and they don't have any qualm about it. I personally don't think that I think it teaches clearly that you shouldn't get a tattoo. Um, I'm not going to get a tattoo. Um, my wife has tattoos from the past, but now that she's a believer, she's not going to get any more tattoos. That's just our understanding of it. That's the way we feel about it. But there was specifically as far as beards go, there's a lot of people that are born that cannot grow a beard. So You've got, there is no command to grow a beard. There's a command not to shorn the sides of your head um, because this was a, in, in the context of all these other ritualistic things that were being done for Baal worship. This is why it's, we always try to show like there's a huge chapter there in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 of this is, these are the ways of the nations. Do not do these, you know, all this ridiculous bestiality and orgies and hooking up with different family members and, you know what I'm saying? Doing all these rituals for the dead and worshiping goat demons and, you know, and so this is, to me, it's all lumped into a big context of stuff that um, is not natural. All right, guys. That'll be the last question for now. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, like, share, and subscribe if you like what we're doing. Help us get the word out because this, uh, it, yeah, just, I don't think we're in algorithms on YouTube to actually grow that you'll you can look at a lot of my videos and they just get to a certain point and they stop even after two or three years where that's that's not normally the way things work on youtube so they they're definitely being taken out of a growth algorithm and just putting into like a, a capped a capped reservoir of like all right once this thing hits three thousand views it's done but yeah i don't know appreciate you guys and we hope to see you again soon here on kingdom cast